You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. From Czechoslovakia comes a masterpiece of our time. The Shop on Main Street. It's 1942, a small town in Slovakia. Rosalia, the elderly widow who owns a little button shop. Tono, the luckless town carpenter, a simple, decent man. His wife, Evelina, avaricious and lusty. His hated brother-in-law, commander of the town's Nazi militia. Here is a warm and humorous story of ordinary people caught in the web of history's tragic events. Tono is proclaimed Aryan controller of the shop of a poor Jewish widow. He comes as her oppressor and finds instead that he has become her helper and ultimately her benefactor and friend. Out of this relationship unfolds a story of shattering force. The shop on Main Street. A searing and powerful film that will move you to laughter and tears with its revelation of human frailty. A once peaceful village is taken over by the local militia. A leader of the community is pilloried. An old lady is about to be deported. And a simple man must answer the thundering question, am I my brother's keeper? The Shop on Main Street, a film the critics have proclaimed a masterpiece. Directed by Jan Kadar and Elmer Close, starring Ida Kaminska and Josef Kroner, the winner of the 1965 Cannes Film Festival Special Acting Awards. The Shop on Main Street, compelling, haunting, a film of power and simplicity. One of the great films of our time, for all time. Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Jonathan Owen. Hello. Happy Czechtember. We conclude Czechtember 2019 with a look at Jan Kadar and Elmar Kloss's The Shop on Main Street. Also known as The Shop on High Street, the film was released in 1965 and written by Ladislav Grossman, based on his own story and book. The film tells the tale of Tono, a carpenter who has been refused from working on his little town's major building project. Instead, he's assigned to be the Aryan face of a Jewish shop run currently by Mrs. Lautman, a nearly deaf and partially blind widow. We're going to be spoiling the heck out of this movie, so if you haven't seen it, please turn off this podcast and come back when you are ready. So, Jonathan, when was the first time you saw The Shop on Main Street, or it might have been called The Shop on High Street for you, and what did you think? I first saw it, I think, in... I was trying to remember whether it was 2002 or 2003, um, and it's kind of another kind of origin story in a way for me, because it was one of a series of uh, Czech films that were available then on video in the UK. And this was at the time when I was planning what was then, I mean, a very kind of undefined research project, postgraduate research project on Eastern European cinema. So I was trying to see everything that I could. And uh, I was especially interested in Czechoslovak films. And so this was one of the films that I saw on 
what used to be a great uh, VHS label called Connoisseur Video, and this released a few new wave films. So I saw this, I think, at the same time as Daisy's, Closely Observed Trains, Valerie and Her Week of Wonders. I think with Shop on the High Street or Shop on Main Street, I probably did not get some of the context. I think my knowledge of Slovakia um, at this time and the kind of specific history Slovakia has in terms of fascism probably was a little bit fuzzy. So I think there were things that I didn't really get in terms of the the story, in terms of the references. But what I do remember particularly is the impact of the ending. So my memory of watching the rest of the film is a little bit vague, but the, the ending really stands out because I remember really being just emotionally overwhelmed by those final scenes. I think the final, the very final sequence where the characters are kind of waltzing out of the shop in this sort of fantasy. Uh, I think it either moved me to tears or, or near enough. I, I remember just being very uh, deeply affected by that ending. So even with my lack of knowledge, my lack of uh, you know context, that really had a big, big impact on me. I'm so glad that you brought up Connoisseur Video because that's kind of a throwback for me. I was like, oh my God, yeah, I totally forgot that label, but they were fantastic. Yes, I remember they had a little catalogue, and uh, I remember I used to look in the cat. It came with one of the videos. There was this little booklet, and you could. I remember I used to sort of draw a circle around the ones I wanted to see, and then there was a place in the UK where you could order them from. Maybe it was the same in the US. There was like a local sort of distribution place where you could call or you could sort of send a little clipping, and you could get the <laughs> get the movie sent to you. And yeah, it was. Uh, very good label. I mean, I guess in the days of VHS, there wasn't the choice that we have now, but that what they chose, they chose well, I think. I think it was quite a good, in terms of the Czech stuff, quite a good introduction, really, to the, the new wave. Yeah, it's kind of like the impact that Facets made here when they put out a bunch of stuff on VHS and then eventually DVD. And it was just a, a handful of things, but it was like enough of a taster to get you interested in other things. It'd be like, oh, here's uh, closely observed trains or here's, uh, you know, even uh, the Gorilla Bays at noon, you know, which I know is not Czech, but it's just like they would have different smaller films that they would put out and be like, oh, OK, now I want to know more about this. Yes, I use facets quite a lot as well, really. When I when I started my uh, re- postgrad research, I mean that was like a lifeline, really. I remember ordering, yeah, lots of stuff. Sweet movie, for instance. I think that was the 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 facets edition that was my first exposure to sweet movie, and yeah, again, really invaluable at that time. This was a first time viewing for me. I have heard about this movie for the longest time, though I will admit that I used to mix it up with Shop Around the Corner and never understood when people would talk about how devastating Shop on Main Street was. And I was like, but it's a nice, light little comedy, the whole thing with Jimmy Stewart. And I mean, yeah, I guess it's kind of devastating when he when he reveals himself to her and he's been messing with her this whole time and the suicide at the end that they nearly have, but you know, it's not that bad. Uh, yeah, this movie gutted me and I was prepared for it, fortunately, but that's also one of the reasons why I put this off so long is once I found out what it was about, I said, yeah, I'm not going to rush out to see this one, but I'm really glad that I did. I feel like I'm maybe a better person for it. And definitely, it's just such a great film. That ending is part of the uh, the slow burn effect that the film has. I think 
and I think perhaps this is partly why my memory of watching the earlier parts of the film were fuzzy because I think that's not really an insult to the film but I think it's the way that the film just insidiously builds this context this context of persecution and then by the end it focuses in and I mean literally focuses in you're just in this in this little shop in this interior and that feeling of dread and that feeling of moral complexity is so intense you get that beautiful fantasy at the end as well and it's very uh, harrowing it's very sad it's it's a beautiful yeah beautiful ending I think but yeah really emotionally devastating now I have to address that this is called Czechtember but I have to say this month we are trying to branch out a little bit away from Czech films you know we talked this month about the joke which is primarily set in Moravia, Silesia, if I'm saying those incorrectly, please forgive me. And this one is definitely set in Slovakia, and it's kind of a big deal that this is so Slovakian, and they really make a point of making this Slovakian, and the language reflects that, the actors reflect that, there's so much to it that says this is a Slovakian film. Yes, it's been uh, something that's been debated a lot as to whether it can be classed as a Slovak film primarily or whether it is some genuine hybrid that is a Czechoslovak film. I mean, obviously, in the days of Czechoslovakia, when it was a single state, every film technically was a Czechoslovak film. But of course, in the case of the Czech New Wave films, I mean, they were made in the in Barendov Studios, they were made in Prague or in other Czech cities with Czech actors, Czech directors and so on. And so it does tend to split quite neatly between, you know, the Czech and the Slovak productions. But in this case, I guess, on the one hand, I mean, it is a genuinely Czechoslovak venture because you have um, Kadar, who was a Slovak, and then Elmar Kloss, who was Czech. Uh, the film was produced at Barendov Studios in Prague, So in that sense, I mean, there is a Czech dimension to it. But as you say, I think in terms of the identity of the film, I mean, it is really more about the Slovak context. I mean, it was based on a a book by a Slovak. And from what Kadar himself said and from what other people have said, I mean, this is really Kadar's film. There's a whole issue as to how much Kloss really was involved in the Kadar-Kloss films. But I think certainly in this case, this is really... Kadar's film, I think uh, Kloss really sort of stepped into the background a little. And of course, Kadar uh, himself was a survivor. His family died in the Holocaust. Um, so this was a very personal project for him. And uh, as you say, I mean, the film is shot in Slovak, in the Slovak language. It's in this town in Slovakia. And it deals with that very specific context, which is Slovak fascism. So I think we'll probably get more into that later on but uh, Slovakia was not technically occupied in the way that the Czech lands were it was a nominally an independent state but of course it was totally allied to the the Nazis and very enthusiastically involved in the you know brutal persecution of Jews so yes I think that specificity of the Slovak context is very important in this case so I think yes I think it's fair to see it as really a Slovak vision a Slovak story What's amazing to me is that this film is 125 minutes and it, well, first off, it flies by, but it also takes you on such a journey. You talked about how it's a slow burn. 
And I would say there's still, there's not a wasted moment, a wasted shot in here because it really is very purposeful as far as introducing who you introduce, when you introduce it, the themes that it introduces, and then taking you and pushing that just a little bit farther, a little bit farther, because the way that our main character feels about things at the beginning of the film is so different than the way that he is at the end, though he kind of slips back into what he is used to at the beginning, and it's such a struggle for him. And it's just such an amazing thing that they can take us on this whole thing. In this book, I, I read the book, um, I read it in a day because it is not a very long book. I want to say the version that I have is like 122 pages, and it follows, the movie follows the book so carefully and so closely. It is remarkable. The thing that you talked about, the waltz at the end, that dream sequence type stuff is not there, but that pushes this into a much more filmic uh, territory, which I appreciate. But there are so many bits, bits of dialogue, everything that just comes straight out of Grossman's screenplay, which makes sense since Grossman adapted his own work. Yes, I think there's a great precision to it. Um, I think that later on, it seems Kadar did use some improvisation in his films, but I can imagine in this case it was very controlled. I mean, it feels very visually controlled. And I think the use of symbols, the use of foreshadowing, I think is really important. And as you say, I think there isn't really a wasted frame, really. I mean, I think everything that you see counts everything means something and i was so glad really to have the opportunity to go back and watch it because obviously the first time i saw it it made a huge impression but i think really watching it a couple of other times gave me this appreciation i think for the visual language that it has and for the way that they drop in just these little details and it together they build this picture of this encroaching context of persecution i mean for instance the way that the Jewish uh, stars come into it. I mean, you you gradually start to see them and the way that that's brought in is really subtle. And I think on, on the second viewing, I noticed that, for instance, the uh, the barber, Mr. Katz, the second time you see him at the point where he's basically being forced to give away his uh, his shop, I think you see a Jewish star on the coat and he just sort of like puts the coat aside and it's kind of offhand and yet it's done in such a way that you can't not, notice it and yet it it, it's kind of a subtle it's a subtle thing the way that comes into it and I noticed also watching it again that uh, at one point I think at the beginning when you see the people sort of promenading um, in the main street you do see a couple of soldiers and I think on a first viewing it's easy to not notice that so in a way you see these little storm clouds already and it's just very subtly woven into the main scene and so yeah I think there is that incredible sort of visual control all the way through, really. I don't think it's any mistake either that we begin this movie with kind of a God's eye view of the town that this is being shot in. And we also have this whole thing with, well, the music that is playing that is going to come back uh, throughout this, and then also the storks that we have. And I'm not really big on symbology as as far as knowing storks other than what everybody knows about storks is that they bring children, which is really an interesting thing because I didn't realize that that translated not just in American culture, but that's also over in Slovakia because that was mentioned in Grossman's book. And he was saying that the kids were excited because the storks were there and they were saying, oh, there's going to be babies that are being born. And I was like, oh, okay. I didn't know that that was more than just like, a you know, our 
old wives' tales. Apparently, it translates uh, from Europe as well. I read up a bit on that as well because I was curious as to whether it meant the same and whether there was some other some other meaning. And I found the same. Yes, that I think again, it's uh, you know the the harbinger of children, and I think generally is a good omen. Um, so I guess there is a deep irony hear about the way those are used i guess also it's an image of nesting isn't it it's an image of nesting in somebody else's territory so i think there are a couple of other associations but i think yes predominantly it is that symbol of hope isn't it and it i mean an interesting interpretation that i read i'm not sure how far i would go along with this was that it's representing i think the perspective of tono and his his idea that somehow he can remain separate from all this chaos and somehow not have to submit to the responsibilities of the world around him and it's this fantasy of somehow being separate of being in a way free of the responsibilities or free of the social demands and political pressures so in that sense i guess that kind of opening where you have the camera kind of moving gracefully along the rooftops i mean maybe it's an image of freedom an image of or a fantasy of of being sort of unfettered but uh, yeah i think the stalks is a really interesting uh, i wouldn't really say a symbol but certainly it's a motif isn't it that's woven in there you see them you see them again a few times yeah they come back a couple times and i it's always curious as far as where they come back in you know is it just a, the need for a break in the story or are they coming in at a significant moment I think you see them in one of the early scenes where Tono first uh, takes over the shop so or, or where he first approaches um, the shop and introduces himself. I think maybe we, we see them at that point. I think certainly they are connected in some way to the business of the shop and the whole sort of Aryanization plot. And I wondered, watching it again, when uh, Mrs. Lautmanovar uh, says that Tona will be like her son. Maybe this is the idea that, in a way, the stork is bringing her this kind of fake son. I mean, that's maybe a little bit of overreading, but <laughs> I wondered whether there was some connection there. I also found it very fun that one of the first things that we see in that God's eye or bird's eye, I guess, uh, shot of the city is the courtyard where the prisoners are walking in circles. It reminded me of uh, Aldrich's Happy End, where I got to see the prisoners out exercising in the yard. And it almost goes with the march music that's being played and then going across the rest of the city to introduce us to here's what's going on in this particular town at this particular time. Yes, I think it's interesting, isn't it, how you get that perspective. So you, you, you can really see clearly how one thing relates to another thing. So you have that, you have the prison, you have the courtyard, and then side by side, you have the the main street. It's this idea that, you know, side by side, simultaneously, there are these separate realities. But of course, the prison may be hidden, but it is there. There is this repression, there is this sort of darker side behind the or under the surface or going on side by side with the sort of pleasant realities and i guess again it's kind of a foreshadowing isn't it of this repression that creeps in i'm glad that they give us a little bit of history here talking about the uh the german laws that are in effect here in slovakia at the time this is uh what it's set in i want to say 42 and this is coming out in 65 so by this time maybe people don't remember or definitely people in the united states who actually 
we gave this movie a uh, Oscar for best foreign language picture the the in 66 I think probably didn't know what was going on in Slovakia at the time I don't think a lot of Americans knew what the hell was going on in the rest of the world uh well they probably still don't nor in the UK I think <laughs> I think the UK also was probably not very clear about the yeah the history of uh of Slovakia and certainly I think the Canadian government wasn't which I think worked quite well for a lot of the people who were actually perpetrators of that regime who were fleeing so uh, yes I think it was probably uh, <laughs> probably to their benefit really but uh, yes that's true that I think that is a very specific context that does probably need that bit of contextualization I mean maybe even for a Czechoslovak audience or maybe for a Czech audience some of that detail was not entirely fresh so uh, Yes, I think that is something that we can appreciate, that it gives us that primer at the beginning. And I think the the 1942 is quite significant because that was the year when the Jewish deportation started. So I think basically what happened was that the independent Slovakia, the independent Slovak state, uh, was already kind of a fascist state, but then took an even harsher turn with the... Um, leadership of uh, Wojtek Tuka, who I think took over from Josef Tiso. And uh, Tuka was much more of an enthusiastic Nazi collaborator. And I think they adopted the Jewish codes in 41. And so I think in 42, the deportation started. So this is really the beginning of the Slovak history of the Holocaust. So I think that year, the way that that year is singled out is quite important. Yeah, everything seems so idyllic in this town. You're, you know, just this uh, kind of pan across everything. We've got that military band playing music in the square. We've got this big uh, pyramid being built in the square. Just uh, everyone's dressed so nicely and everyone's so friendly to each other. And you would never know that fascism is creeping in and that the Holocaust is right around the corner. For me, that has a very Central European feeling. I think that uh, scene of the promenading around the, the main street, I think it's got that sense of, I guess, of like old world gentility. You have this brass band, you have people all sort of well-dressed, maybe in their Sunday best or their finery. The women are kind of holding the umbrellas. The men are sort of tipping their hats to each other. And I think this is setting up like another motif, isn't it, really? So I think this, again, recurs later in different forms. I mean, it takes a darker turn, I guess, about halfway in where you have the town commander, the the fascist brother-in-law, and suddenly it's gone from being this image of gentility and of respectability, and it's become about authority and about the uh, deference to this fascist figure. So uh, I think, again, it's setting up another of those, another of those motifs. And uh, yeah, I think even here, there are soldiers who are part of that. And yet it's not really conspicuous. So yeah, we get this nice, genteel feeling. It actually reminds me of a scene in um, Uri Hertz's film, uh, Oil Lamps, which was made in 72, I think. And that has, um, again, I think that scene of this provincial town where you have the the sort of the Sunday walk and uh, everybody is sort of exposed to one another. They're greeting one another and I think another aspect here is the the sense of community, isn't it, really? And again, this makes it all the more shocking to see how that community descends into persecution because you're in a quite an intimate relationship with everybody else. Everybody is neighbours. Everybody are neighbours in this in this context. And so this is what makes that development quite shocking. We're introduced to Tono around here. And uh, Tono's the first name. I think it's short for Antonio. 
how would you describe him? Because the words like layabout come about in my head. There's a, there's a few other things, but I'm not sure if he's a layabout or if he just has been kind of screwed by what's going on here because it feels like he's, he's very into this building project that they're doing. He's a carpenter, but it feels like he's been kept out of it. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it, how that is introduced? Because I think when we first see him, he's talking with his wife and she's basically trying to get him to go and ask to work on it because it does seem surprising. He's a carpenter. He's not involved in this project and he's very contemptuous. And then she's saying, well, basically to swallow his pride, you know, so what if you have to give a fascist salute? I mean, you're you're going to make money. It's going to be good for you. And then I think we learn later on, don't we, when he's confronting the brother-in-law when he's drunk, that basically he was not allowed to work on it. He had, I think, had applied to work on it and the brother-in-law had thrown him out, basically. And uh, I guess there's a few things we can take from this, aren't there? I think the fact that he's not involved in it, I think, does have some kind of significance in the i mean he he's not complicit in the building of what ultimately is a monument to fascism but i think at the same time the fact that initially he wants to work on it i think shows us the lack of knowledge i think again it's about this lack of foresight this lack of understanding of what he's really involved in and I, that's kind of comparable to how we see the the monument being built as viewers because initially we don't really know what it is. We just know that it's a monument of some kind. And I think it's only gradually when each time we see a bit more added to it, we realize that it is this basically this fascist monument that is really the kind of center point for the deportations. And so, yes, I think in that sense, in a way, he is a kind of everyman figure. And I think we do, to some extent, I think we do identify with him. I mean, there's a lot of or rather, there's a few points of view shots, aren't there, from his perspective. So I think to some extent, we do sympathise with him. But he is kind of a layabout. He's kind of a, an idle character, just somebody who's content to enjoy life. I would say he's kind of really just into his material pleasures without really being a materialist in the way that his wife is. So I think the wife is really uh, much more straightforwardly a kind of dislikable figure. I think Tono wins our sympathies really in spite of himself. I think it's sort of the cluelessness, it's the sort of lack of guile that makes us like him, whereas I think the the wife, Evelina, is a much darker kind of materialism. It's a much darker kind of uh, avarice that she represents. Yeah, he's very happy when he can just go home and soak his feet for a while. Yes, that's really, uh, I think, an interesting uh, motif as well, isn't it, really? And I, I remember that in the book, I think that is mentioned really as his recipe for kind of relieving himself of all his, his troubles. And uh, it's interesting that uh, we also have a lot of drinking in this movie, too. And I think there's maybe an analogy there, you know, soaking his feet, drowning his sorrows. It's basically a submersion of every kind of worry, isn't it, in this sensual experience? And uh, yes, it's a, a nice little kind of recurring thing that he does. Yeah, I, you mentioned the uh, Tower of Babel, and that's what he considers this monument that's being built and eventually we'll find out that it's a monument to fascism basically in here and this uh 
it's very interesting that he calls it the Tower of Babel because of the, well, obviously the the tower, which I believe is an apocryphal story. I don't believe anybody actually wanted to make a tower that was going to go all the way up to the heavens, but it's kind of showing man's hubris and then eventually being struck down by God is how the story goes. And then separating people into, you know, everyone speaks their own language, thus Babel becomes the, the whole idea of uh, where languages come from. Kind of reminded me, of course, a little bit of uh, the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and the way that God is going to smite the Nazis for having the hubris to think that they can control the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Um, But here, we don't really get to see the tower struck down. That tower is still there by the end of the film. No, it is asking for it, isn't it? I think. (laughs) I guess uh, maybe in a poetic at a poetic level, we do um, see it disappear because I remember in that final scene the dream sequence, I think it's not there, is it? I think in the place where it should be there, we have the brass band. But of course, that's just at the level of fantasy and at the level of, I guess, of of a flashback in a sense, because we're going back to a different time, aren't we? To a nicer, you know, more genteel period. So as you say, yes, we don't get to see the the moment of vengeance, do we, when it is when it is blighted. And uh, yeah, I think that the, the, the babble idea is really interesting too isn't it because i guess this is a community in which you know prior to the persecution i mean we do have people speaking different languages or inhabiting different cultures and yet living side by side with one another so in a way there is a kind of community that is based around difference and that is something that seems to kind of work quite well I was reminded a little bit, I think it's just because I just watched The Ear, the whole idea of this party scene that takes place uh, with uh, Tono, his wife, and then it's, what is it, it's his wife's sister, and then his wife's sister's brother is the basically the fascist commander that is in town who is just a real piece of work. This guy just comes across as being such a a-hole right off the bat and does nothing to dissuade me otherwise. There's really nothing nice to say about him, is there? And I think partly it's not just the fact that he's a representative of fascism, but it's also the cynicism, isn't it? And the materialism that, I mean, at at root, this is all about just getting what you can. And uh, it's totally self-interested, isn't it? And uh, what always strikes me about that character in terms of the ultimate commentary on him is that final scene where you see him come to the... uh, the window of the shop and of course rather than doing what Tano is frightened of rather than sort of coming in and inspecting it he just sort of looks at his reflection and I think that really is key to that whole character isn't it that it's all about you know the the, the material goods about his clothes about how he looks and so yeah it's that cynicism I think that we see I mean similar to the wife as well really and uh, yeah I think there's not really anything that's redeeming about him. It's interesting that you bring up him looking at his reflection because he ends up giving Tono this, I guess it's a cigarette case, uh, though I don't think there are cigarettes in it, but instead it's mirrored on the inside. So Tono has to look at his reflection when he opens up this thing and it's all bejeweled and crusted with uh, some sort of like diamonds or something. And he uh, covets that when he sees it. And when uh, the brother-in-law ends up giving it to him, it's kind of this you know, packed between the two of them. Like, here you go, I'm giving you this, you know, piece of riches, but pretty soon the world is going to open up to you because I'm making you this Aryan controller of this little shop and it's just going to, you know, money's going to start pouring in. Now's the good time. Everybody should get in on this because we're all striking it rich. 
yes, there's a real sort of Faustian pact element, I think, to that, isn't there? And, and this idea of showing him something and it's that point where he sees his reflection and it's that idea of, you know, who am I at this point and I'm accepting something. And it's mirrored again, I think, later on, isn't it, in the scene where he looks at himself in the mirror in the final scene and he repeats, I think, the basically the Aryanization order. So I think there's a lot of stuff there with reflections, isn't there? And reflection on who he is at this particular point in the film. And uh, yeah, I think that lighter, again, another example, I think, of using objects, using sort of visual motifs in this subtle way. And I was very surprised, I guess, also being very sensitive to jokes after watching the joke last week, uh, Tono doing an impersonation of Hitler, I was very surprised that he was going to go that far and that he got away with that. Yeah, it's really interesting that the, the brother-in-law doesn't seem to be offended by it. And so again, I guess that's another comment on the cynicism, isn't it? I guess for the Slovak fascists, I mean, maybe they did not feel as sensitive in that respect. But I mean, I, it does seem that he's in, in on, on dodgy ground really doing that. And uh, I guess it's one of the things too that made me think of Chaplin, because I think there is a kind of a, Chaplin-esque dimension really to the character of Tono and I think to the performance of uh, Josef Kroner. Um, he mentions Chaplin by name, doesn't he, when he's trying on the suit from um, that belonged to Mr. Lautman. And uh, so, yeah, I was thinking of the, the great dictator and I was thinking of, for me, the fact that what Tono represents is this anarchic streak of somebody who just doesn't want to be told what to do. I think maybe he's not got the the background or the knowledge to really have a kind of developed reaction against fascism or a developed critique of it, but he just represents this attitude of nonconformity in this spontaneous way. He doesn't want to be told what to do. And I think for him, this Hitler impression, in a way it's childish, but I think it represents, I think, what is good about him, the fact that he doesn't really want to take these orders from somebody. Well, Josef Kroner, he does such a good job of being able to make me sympathize with this character who, you know, I've described him as a layabout, as good for nothing, but yet I care about this character and he takes me on this journey. I typically don't like drunks in films, but he ends up being drunk and he does some great drunk acting later on in the movie and in this scene as well, which is just uh, amazing that I stay with this character despite him being the, the kind of person that he is at the beginning. Yes, he's really an extraordinary actor, isn't he? And uh, I believe that um, Kadar was very keen to cast him, but I think Kloss had some reservations. I think he almost cast another, or he wanted to cast another actor, but I think Kadar was very keen on having Kroner. I mean, of course, very respected actor of theatre and film in Slovakia, but as you say, he has this incredible range, I think, in terms of his expressions. And I think he can be very sympathetic he can also be very brooding in other roles he can be quite menacing i think he just has a great expressive face there is this physical comedy that he does i think all the way through the film in certain scenes and uh, yeah he is really a quite a magnetic uh, performer and as you say i mean drunk acting notoriously is very hard to get right isn't it and i think the drunkenness in this film i think must have been particularly demanding because there's something very intense, isn't there, about the drunkenness that we see, I think, in all of its different manifestations. So, I mean, you sometimes have drunkenness 
used to, I guess, propel this kind of nationalism. So you see characters getting drunk and sort of chanting these nationalistic songs. And then you also have drunkenness as a means of truth telling. You have it as a means of self-reflection at the end or of self-evasion. And they're doing a lot of different things with the drunkenness. So, yes, I think that must have been, in terms of the acting, an incredible, yeah, incredible challenge to convey that range of different sort of states of drunkenness. When Tono awakens from this night of debauchery, where now he's made this deal with the devil, it's nice that we get this POV shot of him looking at the world upside down, which kind of speaks to where we're going to be going with this, because the world is going to be turned upside down pretty soon. I was very surprised he talks about a dream that he has, but we don't see the dream, which is interesting because we're going to get dream sequences later on in the movie, but we don't get that here. And then it's up to his wife, I think, to interpret what this dream of a white butterfly is. And I think she is the one who says that it's the white flag of piece or it's a white handkerchief for us i think it's for us to kind of decide what that white butterfly is going to be i do notice that it's very blown out when we get to the dream sequences that the whites are uber white and the the darks are barely there it's like everything's been cranked up as far as the the iris goes so i'm not sure if that has anything to do with it being this overly white pleasant world that he's going to be in in these dreams or not but uh it was kind of a nice thing that we introduce his dreams in this even if it's just through dialogue that's true isn't it because yes i guess it's again a sort of subtle incursion of that dream life so as you say yes we only hear about it but we don't yet see it and i guess we get more and more of that dream life later on and Again, I think it's ambiguous at this point, isn't it? Because as you say, it can represent the the flag of peace. And I think the wife also says that it's, you know, love of, between neighbours or love between brothers. And so on the one hand, it's something idyllic. It's about this community, this sense of love and friendship between people, completely bogus, of course, at this point. And on the other hand, it's the handkerchief. So I guess the symbol of his newfound position, because the wife is making him this nice handkerchief that she's cleaning for him to take to his first day as the Aryan um, controller. And uh, so, yeah, I guess, again, it's sort of on that fault line between the more idealistic side between the you know the idea of community as something positive and then the idea of Tono as somebody representing the forces of repression so yeah I think there's a nice ambiguity about that the tower is a facade just it doesn't have anything inside of it and it's very interesting the outsides of buildings versus the insides of buildings uh, we're really going to get into Mrs. Lautman's shop here the haberdashery and the inside of the shop, it looks presentable. It's not as good as it's going to look pretty soon. But this whole thing of these boxes, she has boxes and boxes and boxes inside. And they are, again, just a facade. We get to see one guy later on just take all those boxes down and show these are just empty boxes. There's nothing inside of here. She is living, I don't want to say a dream world, but she's definitely living a very protected life at this moment. And she's also living a protected life because as far as I know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think she ever leaves the confines of the shop. That's true. Yes. I don't think we see her outside except for the dream sequences, which I guess underlines that even further, doesn't it? That she, she's really just confined to the shop the whole time. And I guess has this network 
of people run by uh, Mr. Kukar, who really takes this very protective attitude towards her. And uh, yes, as you say, I mean, she's being really screened from reality. And I think, uh, you know, you suggested that it's like a child. And I think that perhaps is another connection with Tono, isn't it? Who's also in some ways quite childlike, not particularly comprehending of what's going on around him. And I think there is that constant connection between those two characters. I think they represent maybe different levels of non-comprehension of these sort of bigger forces around them. And uh, yeah, the idea that she's just in this shop playing out this, yeah, I guess this fantasy of the past, isn't it? Of of, uh, this sort of more genteel, kinder way of life. I mean, that fits well with this idea that these boxes, as you say, they're empty. They're just like little toys that don't really have anything inside them. And even though the tower is visible from inside the shop, she doesn't seem to know anything about this whole Aryanization of the town. When he comes in and tries to say, listen, I'm the new control of the shop, one of the reasons why she can't understand him is that she is almost completely deaf. And then I think also her eyesight is a little bad. He's got the letter and tries to show it to her, and she's either unwilling or unable to comprehend what's going on with that. And so it's just... It becomes one of our first moments of real humor, and then when Mr. Kuchar comes in and starts to explain how things are, that also becomes pretty humorous as well, to just say, like, listen, you just inherited a complete lemon here. There is no money to be had in this shop, and Tono's about to go storm off to the brother-in-law and be like, what did you just sell me? You sold me a bill of goods, and there's nothing here. I can't basically pillage the shop. But then Kuchar is just like, hold off. You know, we'll figure this out, and you will basically be on our payroll. And it becomes, I mean, I mentioned Shop Around the Corner. This becomes almost a situation comedy here with this whole idea of, yeah, you come in, come into work every single day, do what you need to do, stand behind the counter if you want, do all that kind of stuff, and we will pay you. The Jews of the city will pay you to be our Aryan controller of this store. Because it's rather you than somebody else. Like you could be like a real bastard, but luckily we have, you know, this guy who's kind of a bit of a fool, kind of a nice guy, so we can manipulate him and he will just be uh, happy just to get this money. And yeah, I think that's uh, that's kind of an interesting reflection, I think, on the theme of manipulation, because I guess this is also kind of manipulation, isn't it? Both of Mrs. Lautman, because they're manipulating her exposure to reality, but also manipulating Tano to a certain extent. But of course, this is a benign kind of manipulation. And I think there is a lot of humour in that whole strand of the film. Um, I really love the character of the barber, uh, Mr. Katz, because he makes this uh, elaborate speech, doesn't he, when he's giving the money to Tono. And this is, again, a wonderful piece of physical comedy. And he's making this speech about, you know, how the Lord gave us this great wonderful Aryanator. And of course, I mean, there is this really sort of piss-taking dimension to this speech, isn't there? This floweriness. And he says, well, you know, unfortunately, we've not yet found, a, you know, an Aryan controller who doesn't want to get some money for what he's doing and not just doing it out of the kindness of his heart. So therefore, you know, we have to grease his palm. And just the sort of the, the hand movements of Tano, he's just itching to kind of get his hands on the money and it's just being delayed and delayed. It's a really nice bit of physical humor and verbal humor, I guess, as well. Oh yeah. I love that. Yeah. Mr. Katz is great. Mr. Kuchar is great. Both of these actors are fantastic. And then uh, Mrs. Lautman is 
Oh my God. I just, I love this woman so much. She is so sweet in this role. Me too. I think really she, to me, is the emotional heart of the film, really. I think that that just there's something about the sweetness and also somehow the kind of force of personality, I think, just the extent to which, I mean, although she is living in this fantasy world, I mean, she's completely in control of it. So in her mind, she knows exactly what each day is going to look like. She knows, you know, how to make the nice food, the tea, how to run the shop. And uh, that combination, I think, of strength in a certain sense and sweetness. And yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a really moving performance. I mean, I've heard that I think Kadar based this movie or based this character on his mother. I think there's some sense in which this is a kind of idealized portrait of his own mother, who, of course, he didn't really get to see much of because of the tragedy that uh, overtook their family. But uh, to me, that's would be appropriate because I think she really is the heart of this movie. I think Ida Kaminska is a wonderful, yeah, wonderful, wonderful presence, really. There's something, as you say, so sweet, so endearing about her. Yeah, what is the thing that they say, we forgot to uh, feed the wolf to keep the sheep? The relationship that they have, it's so difficult at first. I mean, you're right, it is the heart of the story. It is the heart of this whole movie. And they're they're not sure of each other at first, and when she wants to um, go ahead and, and give him some of her husband's old suits, or he wants to help her out with fixing some of the things around the, the shop, and in, she lives in the shop, and she lives in the back, and he wants to help her out with those things. I mean, that's the moments. Those are the gold in this film. Yes, these are really beautiful scenes, and I think they really express the extent to which, I mean, they, there is a likeness between them, isn't there? I think these are both people who are defined by quite simple pleasures. I mean, I think in the case of Mrs. Lautman, it's this this world of the gramophone records, of the buttons, of the food that she makes. Tono is defined by his love of carpentry, by working with his hands, and Yes, I think if we could just have stayed with them for another hour, it would have been so blissful just to see them just doing their everyday things together and kind of like not communicating, but somehow finding this affinity between one another. And I think even from the get go, you have this lovely moment when he's there with his Aryan order and uh she then starts to talk about the arthritis. And then he, I guess, just completely offhandedly just goes into this a uh, bit of gossip about somebody that he knows who has the same problem. And it's it's so sweet that his natural tendency is just to talk in this conversational way. And uh, there is this affinity, I think, really between them. And uh, that's kind of how I read the f- dream sequences, because, I mean, in a way they are positioned there as husband and wife. And I don't think it's meant to suggest any kind of romantic attachment, but I think it is meant to show this sense of affinity and this warmth between them. Yeah, and she talks about Mr. Kuchar and that he and Mr. Lautman, uh, her dead husband, that they fought together in the war and that Mr. Kuchar really looks out for her. And there's a scene later on where we see him fishing, if memory serves, because they really make a big deal in the book about him being a fisherman and that he will bring her fish every single week for her to have on the Sabbath. And she always chooses the smallest fish. And it's just like, no, you can choose a bigger fish. She's like, no, I'm a little old lady. I don't need anything more. And then he gives the same choice to uh, to Tono. And then, of course, Tono takes the biggest fish. And again, kind of childlike on his part, isn't it? Just to grab the biggest. 
It's a simple. It, 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 again, I guess it's 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 a kind of a greed, isn't it? Kind of materialism, but on a different level. It's childlike, isn't it? Rather than the kind of nasty, calculated materialism of the wife or of the brother-in-law. Oh yeah, the wife when she gives him the book to keep track of everything and count up everything that's in the in the store to take the inventory, and the way that she's like, "Oh, look under the floorboards. The Jews keep all their money under the floorboards." She's like the worst of all of the the horrible stereotypes about Jews the way that uh, the wife talks about them it's just like you know she's read the uh, the chronicles of the elders of uh, Zion and she's just like oh yeah they they have horns you know just everything bad about Jews she wants to attribute to them and and it feels like maybe 6 months ago she didn't feel that way or didn't say those things but now it's full-fledged Yes, I think that's one of the interesting things about the representation of anti-Semitism, because I kind of get a sort of a positive feeling from this film in the sense that I think you don't really get a sense of a kind of organic, spontaneous anti-Semitism. I think kind of at that grassroots level, people do seem to get on quite well. But as you say, it's this sense of, I think, something being whipped up. And, you know, a lot of the nationalism, a lot of the aggressive language that we hear is when people are drunk and when they're dancing or when they're in beer halls. And that's kind of the impression that that I get, really, that at that organic level, people don't really think too much about these differences. But as you say, six months on, we're starting to see it. And, yeah, she's she's relying on these sort of nasty anti-Semitic caricatures and, of course, all in the service of this greed yeah, this whole time, I can't believe I haven't mentioned his dog at all, which has a great name. Uh, it, I think it's Essence is what it looks like. I mean, what an amazing name for a dog. And talk about symbolism as well. I Absolutely. Mean, <laughs> Being an Essence. <laughs> and the way that the dog will come into the shop sometimes, and or it won't, and the way that uh, that kind of comes in, especially later on in the story. And the dog, it's just great dog acting going on with Essence. And I noticed watching it again that there's a little detail near the beginning. Where I think when we first see the uh, the tower in its early stages and the dog, I think it's with another dog, and they both urinate in the construction site. And it's nice, <laughs> nice bit of uh, bit of live satire there. <laughs> that was again directly from the book too. I think he uh, goes up. There's. Uh, the tower, at least in, in the book they're describing it, that they're, it's dedicated to the memory of three people. And he goes up onto that marble area where the names are chiseled in and pees right on that. I think, yeah, that, that dog relationship is very crucial, I think, to understanding Tono's character, isn't it? Because I think, again, it's somebody who relates well to children and, and to animals. And I mean, it's interesting that there are references to people being treated like dogs, aren't there? And I think that there is that sense of him as slightly downtrodden sort of an outsider a little bit in his own community somebody who's looked down upon and there are references to people being treated like dogs it's interesting that the name that uh, mrs lautman uses instead of birdco is kurtko which means mole <laughs> and, uh, so uh, there's another yeah another interesting animal comparison there i'm not sure in what sense he's a mole maybe the idea of uh, similar to the stork in the stork is able to be free of the pressures of the world by soaring above it the mole does the same but burrowing underneath it and uh, there is a kind of mole-like aspect i guess to his his character isn't there 
you point out in the notes that uh, he makes a point to tell the neighbor child that the glue that he's going to use to fix up Mrs. Lautman's place, that that's made out of horses' hooves. And it's like, that's kind of a weird thing to throw out there, but okay. Yes, it reminds me of um, the novella of Closely Observed Trains, where there is a lot of animal imagery. There's a lot of references to abused animals. And I think it's really kind of a handy metaphor that's there, isn't it, for the treatment of people. I guess there's that John Berger quote about, you know, the way we treat animals always foreshadows the way we end up treating people. So there is that intimate connection between the oppression of animals or the sort of the, the, the cruelty towards animals and then the same thing happening to people. And speaking of imagery, I guess we also get the train, don't we, at the uh, in the opening scene. I think three minutes in or so, we see that train go past i guess going to the eastern front and tono is crossing the tracks already we get this dark foreshadowing of the of the deportations it's funny though that we get so much when it comes to um like carriages and and uh, wagons and that's how we see the jews being taken out of the town is in wagons rather than you i mean i imagine they're using the wagons to take them to the trains but then yeah we're also seeing that in there Yes, I think there's something about the primitive nature, isn't there, of that transportation that I think signifies, I guess, the sort of the specificity of Slovakia, that it was doing things slightly differently, but still, yes, going to the same place, doing the same thing. Yes, I was thinking about that final sequence and the representation of that moment. And uh, it's interesting that the word that Mrs. Lautman uses is pogrom, which I guess is partly in a way, partly inaccurate, because, I mean, this is on a much bigger scale than any kind of previous pogrom in history. And yet at the same time, I think it indicates the, I guess, the universal or the sort of timeless nature of oppression. So in a way, she's still able, even with her traditionalist perspective, to frame this in a way that makes sense. And it does it does make sense that this is the ultimate pogrom. And uh, I guess that idea that, you know, these are just primitive means of transportation, I guess, roots that action in something that is a lot older. So in a way, there is this older, you know, history of persecution that this ties back into. That seems to be the word that finally unlocks this whole thing for her. And it's kind of foresight, too, isn't it? Because I guess at this point, of course, the authorities are telling them, you know, you're just going to labor camps, you know, we're going to treat you okay. But of course, she, you know, hits the nail on the head, because this is about mass destruction, mass extermination. And pogrom is the word that signifies that. It's around here where she won't open the shop, because it is the Sabbath. And of course, she can't work on the Sabbath. And this is also around the point where the music really comes to the fore. And this is, and I'm, uh, pardon my pronunciation, but Zdenik Liska, I believe is how you say it. And he did the score for a ton of other things. I was amazed at how many other things that he had done music for. But for me, it's his best known thing is The Cremator. And I know that we've specifically called out the music in The Cremator. And what he does with strings in this movie is just... Just fantastic can go from creepy to joyous to this pounding rhythm that he has as far as the way that now Tono is completely upset and he has no idea because he in his mind it's Saturday people are going to be shopping on Saturday we have to get the shop open and he's so upset by that and him walking down the street with this determined pace with that violin music going behind him just fantastic 
yes it's really like those jagged kind of repetitive strains and and uh, and then it's that contrast isn't it with the sweetness of the waltz music and uh, i think also something that's very distinctive to his style is those kind of choral passages so we get this in the scene at the end don't we where tono is reflecting we get these choral as you say like gregorian chant sounding pieces i mean to me that's very typical of of lishka's work and uh, i guess at this point this is uh, this is like the voices of conscience isn't it welling up and then i think he also did the music for marketa lazarova which we've talked about on this podcast before and i think i'm hoping pretty soon maybe next year we're going to talk about birds orphans and fools which is if memory serves that's also more of a slovakian film rather than a czech film so yeah he was he had his fingers in a lot of pies when it came to the music of this era yes he did a lot of schwankmeyer's films too and i think um i've read somewhere i think this was maybe in peter Hames's book that uh, schwankmeyer who of course i mean completely abandoned music at one point uh he felt that lishka was able to unlock certain rhythms in his films so he was able to find rhythms that schwankmeyer himself hadn't seen and uh, i was reading a little about how lishka worked and it's really fascinating because apparently he would not take any instructions really from the director i think his approach was just to sort of sit down and watch the film and then would just hear the music in his head and would just then compose pieces of music to fit into the film based on what he got from the scene so i I think there was very little communication to him about what the director wanted it was really just his own impressions he's kind of like recording his impressions by writing the music and it just sounds fascinating, really, that he could have yeah, written these scores in this way. And uh, I think he's almost like an auteur composer for me because, yeah, there is that very distinctive, uh, as I say, the use of chanting. I think the waltzes, too. I, I think a lot of the cremator and Morgiana, which I think have waltzes in them as well. And uh, I think this serves also, I think, to connect the film to the cremator. I think the cremator is an interesting uh, comparison point because, uh, again, that's very much about the encroachment of this awareness of Nazi persecution. And um, I think there is a quite a strong, although obviously much more visually, it's a much more visually stylized film. But uh, for me, it does remind me somewhat of that film. Very different protagonist, but uh, that similar sense of mounting dread, I think. Well, yeah, and those uh, fantasy sequences that our main character in The Cremator has about going to Lhasa and uh, just him being this more uh, beatific character really plays well against those fantasy sequences of Tono and Mrs. Lautman on, you know, wearing their Sunday best and going out onto the town. And it's this idealized scenario. It really reminded me, especially that end of The Cremator. Yes, I, I believe that Uri Hertz was an assistant um, on this film and uh, worked a few times as an assistant for Kadar and Klaus. And I think he felt that Kadar particularly was a kind of like a cinematic father figure in a way who really taught him a lot. And uh, so, yes, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a case of direct influence, really. Um, and um yeah, I mean, I think um, in terms of those fantasy sequences, I mean, for me, there's something about the Czech New Wave and the interest in that kind of imagery of the, I guess, the sort of turn of the century style with the bowler hats, with this kind of promenade um, style of walking, this displaying of clothes. Maybe that 
had a kind of emotional resonance for those filmmakers because I'm thinking of Martyrs of Love, the Jan Yemets film, where you have these very nice sort of Chaplin Chaplin-esque sequences of uh, people in bowler hats with these sort of slapstick references. And uh, it seems that that time evokes some kind of emotional security, I, I guess, for that generation of filmmakers. Was that the era that they grew up in or is that that golden age before they were even around? Yeah, I think that's what's strange, really, because I guess it, it, it is before their own youth, really. So I guess this is going back really to the sort of pre-World War One. So maybe it's part of a kind of cultural memory of an era before modernity, I guess, before the First World War. And I think like in this film, I mean, we could say that in a sense, modernity is sort of the villain, isn't it, really? I mean, for instance, when we have the gramophone, and I think that uh, there is a critic who has written about this, about the way the gramophone implicitly is contrasted to the loudspeaker you get the town crier who is unhappy because the town crier now is being replaced by the uh, the loudspeaker and i think at that point the loudspeaker is just playing a song isn't it but we know that ultimately this is going to be used for the announcements you know to to you know to do the roll call of names for the deportation so yeah modernity is kind of the villain i think in this film that town crier is an interesting character because he also turns because the one of the first times that we see him, he is talking a lot of crap about uh, Mr. Uh, Kuchar. The town crier ends up saying that the only thing worse than a Jew is a Jew lover. And then by the end of the film, he's actually kind of helping out when it comes to Mrs. Lautman. So I don't know if it's just her that he would help out, but he definitely is helping a Jewish person, which is a far cry from him being kind of, uh, you know, off the cuff anti-Semitic in the early parts of the film. Mm, And again, he's kind of a mercenary figure, isn't he, at first? It's all about his own security. And I think he, he... after he loses his job as the as the town crier, he becomes basically the person who is giving out the deportation cards to the Jews. So he's happy just because he's got this other job. But as you say, yes, ultimately, I mean, we see a kind of more positive side to him because he is helping uh, Tano to find the name and he's talking to him at the end about uh, what to do in the situation. So, yeah, he's a he's an interesting minor figure isn't he really almost like a reflection or like a perhaps a sort of slightly inferior version of Tono himself because you get this combination of sort of mercenary self-protection but also certain kind of good-heartedness I am so glad that you're on this episode because you're making me sound a little bit smarter than I normally am, which is not smart at all, but also because you could actually read some of the signs that were going on especially this close for stock taking sign ah yes <laughs> Um, this is something that I noticed, I think, the uh, maybe the third time <laughs> that I saw it. And uh, one of those little details is really just thrown in there. And so, yes, um, this is the sign when uh, obviously it's the Sabbath day. So they have to make an excuse and find some pretext to close the shop. And so the word for stock taking in Slovak is inventories at the and is split uh, because they can't fit the whole word along the line on the paper. And so it's split into inventar and then azatia. Uh, sorry, arazatia. So arazatia in Slovak is Aryanization. So basically, you get this word stock taking, but there's a pun because yeah, the second half of the word means Aryanization. Yeah, one of those 
kind of odd, subtle little details that's thrown in there, I guess doesn't really translate. It would be impossible really to, to do a subtitle that translated that in any way that was accurate or interesting. So, uh, yeah, I think though symptomatic of this approach to detail, isn't it? And the idea that the the signs are there. So, I mean, obviously this is meant to be hiding something, but it's also revealing something at the same time. It's telling us what's really going on here. And yeah, this is the part where we really get their friendship blooming and the whole thing with the suit and her putting this uh, old suit, but it's a new suit for him on and, you know, almost looks like it was made for you kind of thing. And then him fixing these things around the house. I mean, just, yeah, like you said, if I could spend another hour right here in this part of the movie and not have it move on into any sort of other thing, that would be great. Yes, yes. Never go outside, just stay inside the little shop, which I think is a really, although I guess it's meant to be kind of decrepit, meant to be, you know, reflective of this, you know, this lack of, lack of, uh, you know, understanding of the present and this, this uh, past world. I mean, there's something really inviting and and cozy about that space, I think. Um, Even at the end, it's kind of a sanctuary, isn't it? It definitely is. And she, like I said, she doesn't get out. I mean, and when he's in there, he is looking at people through the back windows. He's not necessarily going outside either. And it's just this kind of way for, because if memory serves, uh, Essence gets in back and forth through the back window. He doesn't even go through the door. Yes, I think that's right. Yes. And uh, I think there's a lot of imagery too in the film, isn't there, of looking at things through windows or behind some kind of covering, so behind a fence or behind some kind of screen. And I think that is a good commentary on this idea of not quite seeing something properly. And I think that's another interesting aspect that connects both Tono and Mrs. Lautman, because I guess they both lack a certain understanding. And to me, this is really interesting in terms of the fact that, I mean, ultimately, what is happening with the Jews, what's happening with the whole context of fascism i mean i guess the point is that it's not comprehensible so in a way her lack of understanding i mean hits a deeper truth that i mean these things are not comprehensible there's no way to frame these in terms of our everyday life and our everyday relationships and so to me there is a kind of poetic truth about that very sort of non-comprehension of this reality they use the spaces in this area so well. You know, I talked about how she never really leaves and they've got the front of the shop and then they've got the back of the shop. And then even within the back of the shop, they've got her room versus more of the living area and the way that those windows frame what's going on outside. And it's this, if memory serves, it's like a courtyard and then we get to meet all these neighbors and that's where this child, uh, Danko, comes in. And then Danko's missing later on in the movie, which is significant. And it's almost like it's almost like he's watching a movie through those windows because the but it's more of an interactive movie, I suppose, because of the way that everything is being framed and seeing out the back of the shop is so much more pleasant than seeing out the front of the shop. Like I said, you can see that horrible tower that's going up in the front, but in the back here, it is the neighbors and the neighborliness and actually having people that you can talk to that are pleasant to you. Yes, I think we have the woman who is helping Mrs. Lautman too. I think she is first seen coming in through the back, isn't she? And then at the very end of the film, we see Danko, don't we? He has been found, and I think he is living with that same woman now. I think she has basically taken him in. And so I think that's suggesting 
the goodness of some of these neighbours that she is actually taking him in and is protecting him. So again, there's a kind of reflection on the situation with Tono and Mrs. Lautman where he's torn between saving himself and then protecting her. And we see this happening with, with Danko. And so, yes, as you say, I think behind at the back of the shop, we do have this, yes, this, this more pleasant vision of life. Yeah, I'm glad that Denko ends up with her, um, that he is found, because that's, I mean, we've got so many stressors at the end of this film, but one more is that Denko is missing, and it's just like, oh shit, if he's on one of those wagons, he's sunk, you know, if, and it's just like, where is Denko, what's going on with him, and I was waiting for him to show up and it'd be almost a laugh point, but it's not, thank goodness, because by this point, you know, later on in the movie, things are going to get really harrowing really fast. Yes, it's nice. There is some little touch of something positive, isn't there, at the end there. It's, it's just instead of like just ripping our heart out a little bit further, it kind of gives us something to hang on to that is positive. And yeah, I think that is a nice touch. And again, very subtly thrown in. And I was very surprised at how busy the haberdashery gets when all of the customers come in and start demanding help. Because, of course, yes, we've heard that, you know, this is basically dead. This shop uh, is not really making any money. And, yeah, it does seem to be thriving, at least at this point in time. I mean, I don't know if that's just to illustrate the incompetence of Tono. But, yes, you do have this sense of this world going on of, uh, yeah, of, of uh I guess of sort of people making their own clothes, of buying buttons, buying things to decorate their houses with. And uh, yeah, there is this sort of community there, isn't there, of, of women. And I didn't even realize that his wife is amongst those women that are coming in. She checks in, doesn't she? And then he, he Tano, starts to speak in this authoritative way, completely kind of turn the tables. And then I think the outman mistakes the wife for a customer. And he says, she says, like, go after that woman. <laughs> you know, she's, she's a customer. Yeah, it's a, a nice touch, I think. And again, physical comedy. <laughs> yeah, that wife. I mean, once he gets paid, he takes the money home, like a good husband would, I suppose. And they have a little feast. And before they're even done eating, she's already planning on the rest of the money and thinking about what's this going to be like in that that is the one that breaks my heart, even though she's being this really horrible person when she says, oh, just imagine how much money we're going to have in a year's time, two years time, 10 years time. And it's just like, oh, honey, things are going to be so different in a month's time, in a week's time. We're not talking years here. We are talking days. Yes, it's just that calculation, isn't it? And that lack of satisfaction, um, because... I guess at first it's about the food, isn't it? It's about these sort of still fairly simple pleasures. But yes, I guess it's as as the money comes in, the scale gets ever larger. And yeah, that is quite chilling, I think, as you say. I mean, uh, and then, of course, I mean, ultimately he turns on the wife. I find this seems sort of, I guess, slightly problematic because uh, I guess we're meant to take his side aren't we here um so yeah i'm not sure how i i feel about that scene i guess we can understand it but yeah i'm a little uncomfortable with the the slapping i must say <laughs> yeah it's like there are so many people i'd rather slap in this movie than the wife now she she's pretty awful person but there are people that are worse and yeah i'm not a big fan of domestic violence in any sort of way so that is really that part has not aged well at all no, no. Yeah, I think the brother-in-law is the one we want to, 
get the major slapping, isn't it? And the guy in the beer hall. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking that it's the moment when they finally hoist up that double cross symbol. That seems to be the moment because we we've talked before about how this movie is a slow burn and there's no one particular place that I can sit here and point at and say, that's it. That's the moment when things turn. But if I had to get close to that, I would say when that tower is complete, then things start to get really dark, but we've already started to see. It's like the sun's already start to set, and pretty soon night is on its way. Yes, there's a kind of madness that takes over, isn't there, in that scene, because you have all the drinking and all the dancing. And yes, as you say, it's, uh, I think, the kind of the final touch, isn't it? And this is the... Uh, the double cross that is basically the uh, version of the Slovak coat of arms, which, I mean, has been used in other periods. But here, this is basically the fascist version of that uh, of that image. So this is really like the Slovak uh, swastika. And so, yes, I guess that is the sort of crowning moment, isn't it, where we see that process complete. And then it's just one thing after another after another. You know, you talked about him slapping his wife. We I talked about uh, how Mr. Kuchar shows up with uh, the I'm a Jew lover around his neck, and he's all beaten up. And it's just like one thing after another after another. And meanwhile, Mrs. Lautman is none the wiser, and we're just so happy that she's none the wiser. She gets scared, doesn't she, in those final scenes. And I, 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 I feel so sorry for her i feel so emotionally overwhelmed i think in that moment and i i don't yeah it's like i want him just to not tell her i want it to, i want it all to be <laughs> kept hidden and uh, it's so tragic that in that moment where he does really seem to be trying to save her at least even just his own self-protection he actually kills her you went there the movie went there i couldn't believe that the movie went there i knew before he opened the door that she wasn't okay in there and that just tore the heart out of me i couldn't believe it because yeah he's just he's so desperate trying to and we've got this countdown that's going on with this because we've got the loudspeaker that you talked about and the loudspeaker outside they're reading off the names and we see all the jewish people out in the square and they're reading off these names alphabetically and it's just like oh my god what's going to happen when they get to the L's. So we've got this ticking clock going on. We've got him continuing to drink and get more and more drunk. We've got him trying to convince her. Now she's scared of him. And there are times where she should be scared of him. There are times where he's talking to himself about how crazy this is, that he's trying to save this Jewish woman and that he should just save himself. And he goes through this huge, wide range of emotions as he's drinking and hearing these things. And we've got the town crier coming to the door and talking to him and just so many things that are happening. And it builds and builds. And then again, we've got that music and the music is just going crazy. And this movie movie is just it won't let go and then it finally takes us to that moment that you just talked about of her behind that door that he's shoved her and he doesn't know it and when he finds her behind that door dead that he then pretty much just goes and commits suicide it's the most natural thing in the world it's like well of course you would what else is there to do and you have the camera don't you following him and he's he's in, in a way, very bold, because it's an incredibly non-naturalistic moment, isn't it? He's openly looking at the camera, darting the camera's gaze. And 
I guess, makes sense in terms of the subjective point of view, because, I mean, that has been identified with his own perspective. And then finally, I guess, in a way, he's being confronted by his own consciousness. It's his own conscience that is confronting him. And there's nowhere to go, as you said, nowhere, nowhere, nowhere to go, nothing to do now but to commit suicide. And this has also been prefigured, hasn't it? Because we've seen images of rope. There's a scene where he's in his garden and he picks up that... Uh, that clump of, of cord, isn't there, from the, uh, I think, from the washing line or something. And so, yeah, again, there is this prefiguring going on. And as you say, there is this horrible inevitability about that. Well, and we've even got the whole idea of the floating camera, because during the first dream sequence, the camera's floating along with them. And it just is amazing. Like, they're floating through the streets. I think you said, like, umbrellas of Cherbourg. And it's like, oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. They float out of the shop. It's just a beautiful thing. So that we have this non-subjective camera is already been introduced and that it comes back in the scene is just feels, again, very natural. It doesn't feel jarring. Yes, it's an incredible command of style because, I mean, this is not really a very stylized or flamboyantly uh, surreal or fantastical film. And yet they're able to work at these different in these different registers where you do get i mean a, a strong sense of realism but you know you get these handheld camera movements you get these fantasy sequences i mean the part where the doors open i mean it's incredibly you know non-naturalistic and yet i guess emotionally it's just really what we want isn't it it's what we need at that moment so it does have this kind of poetic logic to it in the way that they speak to each other without opening up their mouths and yeah, and then when after he kills himself, that we go back to the fantasy sequence, thank God, because if that movie just came up and just said Koenig, it would be, I wouldn't know what to do with myself, because that would just be the bleakest ending in the entire world. I mean, it's almost a cheat that we have that dream sequence, but it speaks that there are better times, that there can be a better world, but in this era at this point in this time it's not it is the worst of the worst yes i think that's very true i think that is the takeaway from that as you say in what on the one hand i mean it is a case of sugaring the pill isn't it because i it is one of the most it's one of the harshest endings that i i've ever seen i think because of the emotional investment that we have and i think the way it has this double death at the end i mean it's incredibly incredibly uh moving incredibly hard to to sit through and then as you say you know we get this nice fantasy scene but i I think that is the takeaway that the suggestion is you know there is something better and i think that to me um strikes a chord with that idea that you know people are not necessarily bad there are these you know there are sort of good tendencies that people have that people can be whipped up into these Fervors and people can show greed, but there are still possibilities for people to live together. And um, I think um, in one of, I think it's in the dream sequence where they are speaking, and she, Mrs. Lautman says, you know, fear is where hatred comes from, or fear is at the root of all evil. And I think there is that sense that I mean, it is the fear. It's the fear, for instance, that's in Tono of himself getting caught, of getting into trouble. This is what motivates him to do bad things. And I think it is about that idea that, you know, in these circumstances, people are forced to do things that are that are bad. But in a better society, in a better world, I mean, there are other ways of life that are possible. 
It's also not good that we are ending with some of the same music that we begin the movie with, which then kind of speaks to this as being a cycle. You know, just as we've seen kind of a negative version of the, you know, sort of the promenading in the street with the brother-in-law. I mean, as I say, that early, that first sequence, I mean, does also show you the seeds of evil. It shows you these soldiers sort of mingling among the crowd. So even there, when everything is meant to be idyllic and happy, there is this sort of undercurrent. So as you say, I think the cycle, the idea of the cyclical relates to that, doesn't it? That I think that things recur and recur through history. Yeah, and this isn't a Quentin Tarantino movie. It's not like the brother-in-law gets his comeuppance, that the all the bad people in town get their comeuppance, that he then goes over to Berlin and murders uh, Hitler. You know, this is the real deal. This is what was there and and this is what hurts yes yes there's no cop out at all is there i mean the the brother-in-law the last time we see him is when he's he's basically straightening his tie isn't he and just gazing at himself adjusting himself and yet no no comeback at all and that was the thing you know we've mentioned this quite a few times talking uh about czech films and slovak films in czech temper is the way that the czechs would use the Nazis as standard for the communists or not and would explore how things were in the war and maybe make some parallels to how they were then. And, you know, this is pre 1968. So they're about to undergo a a whole other world of hurt when it comes to that. Um, But some of the other greatest films of the Czech new wave were some of the ones that were speaking about the Holocaust. Yes, I think it's really interesting uh, in that, I mean, there are a lot of really great um, Czech films about the war and about the occupation and about the Holocaust. And yet I get the sense, the more I read about the film industry and the uh, officials at Barendorf and in the various uh, film production groups, that this was still not the most welcome or the most comfortable topic. So uh, even in this case, I read a story recently about when the film was still at the stage of just having the story, the the Grossman story, and it was submitted as an idea to the production group. And um, basically the attitude of the people who were assessing the idea was that, well, we've had one Holocaust film recently, which was... um, Spinjak Brinick's uh, Transport from Paradise. Well, why do we need another one? And uh, very strange idea that uh, it, it doesn't deserve more than one film at any one moment. And uh, I believe Kadar's response to that was just to say, well, you know, that film wasn't very good. I mean, just <laughs> lying through his teeth to, to, to try and get his film made. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it does seem that it was not the most comfortable topic, which is kind of surprising. I think that the, the Jewish angle seemed to trouble the communist authorities and their, their representatives in the film industry. And uh, in the case of Uri Hertz, when he made his film um, The Night Overtook Me in the 80s, uh, he had trouble with even representing the Jewish experience uh, because basically the Barandov um, uh, heads wanted him to stress the fact that the people suffering were communists and that they were political prisoners and not to emphasize the Jewish aspect at all, which just seems really, really bizarre and strange. And um, 
yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting, yet nonetheless, you know, there are so many great films about that period that, that managed to get through. And uh, as you say, I think it does have a resonance beyond the sort of specific nature of Nazism. I think often it is a means to comment on the present. And I think in this case, I mean, it's really a universal statement about how people behave under situations of extreme political pressure. And so, yeah, I think it definitely does transcend that context as well as being a you know, great film about that, about that era. I mean, not that you would want to sit and watch another movie after you've just been gutted by watching this one, but to your point, something like Transport from Paradise or The Fifth Horseman is Fear, there are other films that really would complement this one if you wanted to do a really horrific double feature. Yes, yes. I think um, Fifth Horseman is Fear also has that sense of enclosure, doesn't it? Although I guess in that sense, it's more of a claustrophobic feeling as opposed to the sense of the sanctuary of Mrs. Lautman's house. But yeah, I think that would make a great compliment to this film. Uh, another film that it reminds me of a lot is um, Carole Mack's um, Hungarian film Love, which I think was made in 1970. And that's almost kind of like a Stalinist equivalent to this film so i mean if this film is about the uh, fascist era uh, love is about the um, repercussions of stalinism because that's about this um, elderly woman who has a son who has been uh, basically taken to um to prison for political reasons but the daughter-in-law basically sustains this fantasy that the son is living in america and that he's happy in america and the woman just lives in this fantasy that's composed of memories of her own youth. So there's all this kind of fond de imagery, which has been kind of comparable, I guess, to the world that Mrs. Lautman lives in. And uh, yeah, for, I don't know if Carolee Mack was influenced by the shop on the high street, but uh, it's a film that I always kind of link to that one. I haven't seen anything else as far as I know that um, Cotter and Kloss did. And I know that... Um, I think Klaus eventually retired and then Qatar went off and did his own thing. I have yet to see Death is Called Engel, Engelchen, Engelken. Yeah, Death is Called Engelken. That, that's, yeah, that's really good. That's um, a couple of years earlier and is also about the, um, about the, uh, the occupation in the Czech uh, context. And so, yeah, that's a great uh, resistance movie. And, they did a film a few years after um, Shop on the High Street called um, Adrift. So Adrift was the American title. Um, the, the Czech title is uh, Desire Called Anada. And this is a very different um, kind of film. This is a sort of poetic fantasy. Um, Peter Hames compares it to Rob Lee, which I think is quite appropriate, really, because it's about this mysterious woman who sort of enters the life of this um uh of this middle-aged man who has a sick wife and it's again i guess there's issues about guilt and about uh about personal conscience and but it's done in a much more dreamlike much more fantastical and elliptical way so it's very much of its era i think it was uh begun in um 68 it was eventually released internationally in 71 but yeah that's also well worth seeing seems to have disappeared sadly but i think uh, definitely deserves resurrecting and it has another great um Stanyak Lishka uh, score and this gets a bit kind of um Kadal's career gets a bit 
confused at this point because he basically emigrated to America as he was still shooting adrift. So he he went to live in New York basically as a consequence of the um, 1968 invasion. And he made a film in 1970 called um, The Angel Levine. And I think this is a really uh, interesting um, counterpart to The Shop on the High Street. I mean, it's less successful. It's not It's not anywhere near, I think, as important an achievement as Shop on the High Street, but very interesting in terms of the fact that, again, you have um, Ida Kaminska, who plays Mrs. Lautman, who also emigrated to America. So she is in this film and she is starring alongside um, Zero Mostel and Harry Belafonte. So, yeah, that's a really interesting mix of actors. This is very much about the kind of New York Jewish experience. So, um, yeah, I think I think it's available on Amazon Prime. So I think if anybody wants to check that out, that's well worth seeing. And um, he made a film in Montreal in 1975 called Live My Father Told Me, which uh, I believe won a Golden Globe and uh, I would say is probably the best film that he did, I think, as an emigre. So I would definitely check that out too. I think Angel Levine and Lies My Father told me they're often grouped together with um, Shop on the High Street as his, as Kadar's Jewish trilogy. So yeah, I think those are two places to go after that one. The Angel Levine has such a weird pedigree because it was, the story was Bernard Malamud. Screenplay was Ronald Ribman and Bill Gunn. And if people recognize the name Bill Gunn, it's because he did Ganja and Hess. He was poised to be a lot bigger than he was. He did a movie called Stop in 1969 that I believe Warner Brothers still has yet to release, though it's floating out there on VHS, apparently. And if you have a copy, please feel free to send it. Um, and then, yeah, produced by Harry Belafonte. And it's like, what is going on with this movie? It's just this weird amalgam of talents coming together to produce this. Yes, it's it's a really strange one. I mean, I, I Kadar was really finding his feet still, um, and I think uh, perhaps one of the reasons it's not as successful as Shop on the High Street is because he was not pretty fully acclimatized yet to being in America. Um, he'd basically, I think, got the contract to make it pretty much as soon as he he landed. So I mean, he was really just fresh arrival there, really, and. Uh, it's a very odd film about Harry Belafonte being um, an angel who is sent to cure um, the sick wife of um, the character played by Zero Mostel. So Ida Kaminska is the the sick wife. And um, there's a lot of ambiguity as to whether this guy really is an angel or not. And uh, I guess there is a, a similar message about racial tolerance about different communities but yeah it do- doesn't really work ultimately for me but yeah very fascinating experience not least i think to see that combination of talents on screen together well and this is in that era well it's a couple of interesting things that are happening at the moment because you talked about him emigrating from uh czechoslovakia so it's you know post-1968 People are on the run from Czechoslovakia, so we've got him, we've got people, I, I want to say that Ivan Passar is coming over around this time, this is also right around the time that uh, Foreman's making his first American film, Taking Off. 
Uh, and then you've also got the studio systems collapsing. So this uh, Angel Levine was being put out by United Artists, who were bankrolling a lot of very interesting talents at the time. You know, I talked a long time ago about uh, Peter Watkins's Privilege and just a bunch of movies that were coming out, like 68 to 71. You know, these million dollar movies that they were like, oh, well, we're going to bank these new filmmakers, and, we'll, and eventually one of them will hit, kind of thing. I think uh, you know, also THX 1138 was coming out around that same idea as well. So yeah, just a weird combination of these Czech directors emigrating, studio system collapsing, and then money being put into it to try to you know, harness new talent. Yes, that is a really fascinating period for me where you get MGM making things like uh, Zabriskie Point or I think MGM produced Leo the Last as well, didn't they? The John Borman film, which is just completely mad. The film with um, Marcello Mastroianni. And um, yeah, there, there is that whole period of experimentation and of reaching out, I guess, to European directors. And at the same time, you have Czech directors fleeing from the invasion, wanting to come to America. And uh, you have that kind of rise in co-productions as well so you have um in the case of um adrift which was uh, begun in 68 i mean that actually was a czechoslovak american co-production so um even before kadar had left uh, czechoslovakia he he's he has started working with an american um company and uh, yeah i I mean, for me, it's fascinating to think where that could have gone because, I mean, there were a few efforts, I mean, in some cases mediated by the likes of Carlo Ponti to set up kind of Czechoslovak uh, Hollywood sort of co-productions. And I believe Foreman was going to direct a film called The Americans Are Coming, which I think would have been an MGM co-production that Ponti was involved in some way. And um one of the really fascinating projects, which sadly was never made, was um, Kadar and Kloss's attempt to make an adaptation of um, War with the Newts, which is a um, Carol Chapek novel from the 1930s. And this is this bizarre sort of science fiction uh, allegory about this um, kind of race of basically superhuman uh, newt characters who who I guess are kind of like an allegory of fascism and uh, this was apparently going to be a Czech, Slovak, Italian, American co-production and uh, of course um, wouldn't have been possible purely as a Czech, Slovak production because of the budget that was needed and uh, yeah that's for me one of those great lost projects of that era really but yeah as you say you get a lot of this kind of uh, cross-pollination between Hollywood and Europe, which I think is really fascinating. And I think that probably did provide the conditions in which Kadar could, you know, I think fairly reasonably re-establish himself um, in the early 70s in America. And uh, yeah, I think Foreman really did the best out of that group of filmmakers who emigrated. I mean, I really love, um, I really love a couple of Passers films. I mean, I think for me, um, uh, Cutter's Way, I mean, is, is you know, a, a masterpiece, really, of new American cinema. But, yeah, I think um, Kadar, too, I think, uh, you know, Lies My Father Told Me is really uh, worth watching. And there's a really interesting sort of quasi-Western that he made in the mid-'70s, which was made for the Bicentennial. And this stars David Warner in an adaptation of Stephen Crane's novel, The Blue Hotel. And this stars David Warner as this kind of Swedish stranger who comes to this hotel and uh, basically gets involved in um, 
a fight and uh, that's all about fatalism and about uh, I guess the sort of confrontation of the new and the old world and yeah that's a really interesting one too I think that's worth checking out it's kind of disappeared too really Wow, that sounds right at my alley. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it's on YouTube, actually. Yeah, it's, um, and I think, again, I think probably slightly better quality version is available on the US Amazon Prime. I wasn't able to access it in uh, in Canada, but I think it's on the, the US Amazon Prime. But yeah, it's only like an hour long, but yeah, definitely worth checking out if you want to see David Warner with a very dodgy uh, Swedish accent and uh, James Keach eating jelly beans, which is kind of... Uh, <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. We've lost the East Coast. Europe's still dark. It's worldwide. I need you to help. You're asking me to leave my family. Don't pretend you're not well suited for the job. I don't want to leave you. I have to go. Try not to kill one. It only makes the rest of them more aggressive. World War Z, rated PG-13. That's right. We'll be back next week to kick off our Shocktober series with a look at World War Z. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Jonathan Owen. Jonathan, what's been keeping you busy, sir? Uh, Well, I've got a few things um, coming up. Um, I've written a booklet for the new Indicator release of um, a really fascinating Czech-British film from the mid-60s called um, 90 Degrees in the Shade. So I believe that's being released on the 23rd of September. Uh, So, yeah, definitely uh, check that out if you're interested in Czech or in British cinema of that period. Um, It's got a lot of really fascinating uh, special features on it, uh, including some of the uh, documentaries by the director, Jerzy Weiss, that he shot uh, in the 1940s. And uh, the film itself uh, features Rudolf Prusinski of the cremator fame and... um, on the uh, new release, you get both the Czech and the British uh, versions of the film. So, you know, in one version, you have uh, the pleasure of hearing Rudolf Ryszynski with a, an English accent. Is that really his voice or is he being overdubbed? He, he actually spoke English on set, but he was then dubbed by this rather strange kind of punctilious English accent. So, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it was... Um, kind of sad for him really that yeah he learned the english phonetically and then he was dubbed into uh into english and uh, yeah but yeah really really interesting uh kind of quasi film noir quasi romantic melodrama yeah apart from that i'm doing some more work for second run so a couple more releases pending uh from them and I also have a piece on um, Your I Hurts in a book that is coming out, I believe, at the beginning of next year. And that will be about Barandov Studios and about uh, the rela- relationship that various uh, directors had with that. So, yes, I think that will be of interest to uh, any fans of, uh, of this film. Yeah, I have to admit that 90 in the Shade, I always screwed up with 92 in the Shade, which I guess was the sequel, right? That, of course, has been on my mind a lot lately because that was yet another Peter Fonda and Warren Oates film. Yes, I don't think I've ever seen that, actually. I've read the no- it's the Tom McGuane novel, isn't it? Yeah, I, yeah, I do mean to uh, check that out sometime. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of owing myself a Peter Fonda retrospective soon. So, yeah, we'll try and uh, we'll try and see that, I think. But I think race with the devil comes first but yeah i will definitely try and check out 92 in the shade 
I read that you're doing research on Slovakian fairy tales. Yes, this is another kind of thing that I keep delaying and putting off. Yeah, I'm trying to make contact with some of the the film industry um, personnel, basically, because I'm really interested in the fact that there were these co-productions between um, Slovakia and West Germany. So uh, this is um, really in the 70s and 80s. So I'm kind of... um, yeah, looking at a slightly later period than what I usually look at. And um, because I, I've worked quite a bit on co-production in the 60s and that kind of makes sense because you have this openness, you know, from the Czechoslovak side. But um, I don't really know as much about how these things happened in the 70s and 80s, which is meant to be a much oppressive era. So I'm kind of interested in how these, you know, how these were made and what the experience was on both sides of the German and the Slovak people working side by side with each other so yeah i'm trying to uh yeah trying to kind of find contacts and uh talk about some of the uh, uh they were mainly fairy tale films really that were made like this and uh i guess kind of a reasonable amount has been written about the czech fairy tales but yeah the slovak fairy tales are really not known about at all so yeah I'm, that's another kind of aim really to kind of uh, make a case for the slovak uh yeah slovak fairy tales too yeah it keeps getting delayed and delayed really because uh i kind of like uh, because i have kind of like a day job where i, I basically teach english here in toronto i i sort of get that I, I i really get behind with my research work and uh i like doing say short pieces like so if it's like for a dvd release or something i mean i, I find that's kind of like a manageable thing to do because i can sort of set a time frame for that but it gets harder and harder to do like longer term research projects and uh it, it's often i'm often kind of handicapped a bit by not being able to travel as often as i would like really and uh fortunately i mean like say the slovak and the czech film archives are really helpful so they often will send me materials and things and they'll scan things for me but there's like a certain point when i do need to go somewhere and uh yeah i kind of feel that i've been a bit lazy this year with some of the longer term research really but i do like to keep my hand in with that because i like to just find out a lot of first-hand things really and actually sort of talk to the people that were involved in some of these films Well, thanks again, Jonathan, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.